Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, how do manta rays communicate? Two-ray radio. Why did the ray have a chat with the scuba diver? He wanted to have a manta man talk. For the first time ever, we have a second time guest on the show, my good friend, Jessica Pate. If you've listened to episode two of the podcast, you've already heard her story and the genesis of her research. Today, we start right where we left off in that episode. Jess shares a few of her many exciting projects, including identifying and describing a third species of manta, tagging the mantas, and future projects with guitarfish. We chat about how the Manta Project has evolved from bow riding to droning, how it's grown from a side project to a full-time endeavor, and how Jessica's work was featured in Nat Geo. Jess has a great sea story at the end, and I even include one of mine that she was a part of, so stay tuned for that. Please enjoy. Jess, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm excited to have you on again. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Kara. So at the end of the first conversation we had, you were talking about a study that you wanted to do to evaluate kind of angler interactions with manta rays. You noticed there was a lot of entanglement issues with rays, like finding fishing line or fishing hooks on them. And since then, you've actually conducted this survey and study. What were some of the results that you found? Yeah, so the reason we wanted to do this study is because we were seeing all these rays being entangled, but we really weren't sure how it was happening. Do anglers even know what a manta ray is? Are they casting at them intentionally or are these interactions happening by accident? So we went out to piers and inlet jetties in Palm Beach County and interviewed about 200 recreational anglers. And what we would do is we would first ask them, like, do they know what a manta ray is? If they said yes, we would show them a little photo array that had you know, pictures of like a manta ray, a sawfish, a cow nose ray, and be like, can you identify the manta ray? And we found that about two thirds of them could positively identify which one a manta ray was. So in general, the anglers did know what manta rays were, but they didn't express any interest in catching them. But what we found is that it seemed like a lot of these interactions were happening accidentally. The anglers were leaving their lines out and the mantas are swimming into them. And what happens is these anglers aren't fishing for large things on the pier, so their tackle isn't strong enough and the mantas end up breaking the line. And what we found is, too, that most anglers didn't know what to do if they hooked a manta ray. A lot of them said that they would try to reel it in and remove the hook. And while the intention there is good, it's not really feasible to do that with such a large animal. 
what we're now encouraging people to do is if they see a manta ray to reel in their lines and wait till it passes to avoid hooking them in the first place. Yeah, great advice. A similar advice that you give if you see a pod of dolphins when you're fishing, right? Please reel in all your lines so nobody gets entangled because you're definitely not reeling that fish in. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a win-win for everyone because the anglers don't want to lose their tackle, which is what's going to happen. Their line's going to break. Right. That makes total sense. I had this very funny vision of you and the people that were helping you conduct this survey up on piers with photo ID cards and just giving people random pop quizzes. Like, can you identify a manta ray? Oh, it's really funny. Some people get really nervous. They act like they're going to be graded on this assignment. And I'm like, no, we just want to see what you know. You're not going to be graded. And I'll tell you the correct answer afterwards. And if you look in our published paper, we actually have that array that we gave them as one of our figures. And we have the manta ray in there twice. We have like one picture underwater and one picture above water. And they could identify the one underwater more easily because what they're using to identify the manta ray is what the anglers call them the horns or the mandibles. But scientifically, we call the cephalic fins. And I think they have a little more trouble seeing them from above the water. So they had a little more trouble identifying that one. Hmm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. So the Oceanic Manta Ray is listed on the U.S. Endangered Species Act as of 2018. And I don't remember if we mentioned that or not in our first episode, but I'm curious because there's two species of manta rays that we definitely know of now, the reef manta and the oceanic. Is there a chance for the reef manta also to be covered under that or did that already happen? No, the reef manta isn't covered under the Endangered Species Act. It was proposed for listing along with the giant manta ray, but it wasn't deemed vulnerable through a significant portion of its population. So only the giant manta ray was. Interesting. And along that same vein, you are thinking that we might have a third species here in Florida. Could you talk a little bit about that? My colleague, Andrea Marshall, who's the co-founder of MMF, first described the two different species of manta ray back in 2009. And in this paper, she also proposed that there may be a third species in the Western Atlantic and Caribbean. Since then, there has been a couple of genetic papers that have shown that these population in the Western Atlantic and Caribbean are genetically different from giant mantas and reef mantas. So the last thing that requires doing is formally describing the new species in a taxonomic paper. Are you working on that? Yes, we are working on it. So physically, you know, without looking at the genetics, can you tell the difference between a reef manta? And I mean, oceanics are bigger than reef. Can you tell the difference between these three species without looking at the genetics? Yeah, and just to clear something up so it's not confusing to people, the giant manta and the oceanic manta are the same thing. Sometimes they're just different versions of common names. I usually say giant manta. But yes, you can tell the difference. But there's also a lot of individual plasticity within species. And there can be overlap between some of the characteristics. So looking at them with the naked eye or just like looking at their coloration in the field, it can be tricky to differentiate between some of the species. So it's primarily color. And then obviously the oceanic manta or the giant manta is the biggest. Yeah, it's the biggest. They tend to be these more heavily contrasted mantas. Like if you look beneath them, they have like this really dark shading and a dark mouth and these dark spots under their gill slit. 
And the reef manta is much more light in shading and tend to be more spotty with spots kind of all over their ventral side. And how do the Florida mantas or these Western Atlantic Caribbean? They're kind of like a a mix in between. It's basically these mantas have split off from the giant manta. And it kind of looks like they're basically like evolving back to the reef manta because they have more similar habitat to like what a reef manta does than a giant manta. They're more coastal species. Yeah. So when we talked before, you know, this was like a side project. We talked about the genesis of it. You know, you were you're doing sea turtle research on the beach and you were seeing these manta rays immediately offshore in just a few feet of water and you got curious and you are the only one studying manta rays in Florida, at least, which is pretty incredible. And your research really has grown so much. And you're now studying what from Boynton Beach Inlet all the way up to Canaveral, at least in this state. Is that correct? Yeah, so we have kind of two projects in Florida, our year-round project in South Florida that's studying the juvenile population. And then in Central Florida around Cape Canaveral area, we have a project that runs mostly during the spring when there's um, a migration of mantas that comes through every year. Which you just got back from? Yesterday. (laughs) Yesterday. Okay. I didn't realize you were going so late. Okay. So... You just got back from evaluating this migration of mantas in Canaveral. What are some of the differences that you're seeing between the ones in South Florida versus the ones in Canaveral? And how did your field work go? Well, so the main difference is, is that this is a population mostly of adults. There are juveniles seen in Central Florida, but we're seeing mostly larger mantas. Down in South Florida, it's pretty much exclusively juveniles. And I would say the conditions in the field can't get much more different in both of the places. I, you know, South Florida has this crystal clear water most of the time, a sandy bottom, it's shallow, it's pretty easy to find the mantas and then keep track of them. And then up in Cape Canaveral, the viz is, we call 10 foot an excellent viz day up there. But (laughs) I mean, I actually call this project Mantas in the Merc because you basically are swimming through the Merc through shark infested waters, because there's so many sharks up there, and sometimes almost running into a manta because you can't see it until you're right on top of it. <laughs> Which is important because in order to get the identification shot, you do need to get underneath the manta and get a clear photo of the manta's belly. Yes. And I love that when we were talking before we hit record, you were saying that you have lots of video and photos of people right next to manta rays and they were in the water and they couldn't see them. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we've had to learn to either you have to swim towards the manta ray with your head above water so you can see better above water than you can in the water. And a lot of times to make that dive to get the ID shot, you have to do it before you can see the manta, which is really tricky. (laughs) So we missed quite a few ID shots. Our success rate is definitely not as good up there as it is down in South Florida. Yeah, that makes sense. How deep are these mantas? These are the bigger guys, like the adults. Are they in a little bit deeper water? Because in South Florida, they're like 5, 10, maybe 15 feet of water. It really varies. These mantas can be pretty much anywhere. Sometimes they're on the beach, like, you know, right in the breakers and stuff. But that wasn't the case this year, at least when we saw them, they were further offshore, but the continental shelf is a lot wider up there. So you can be a couple miles offshore and it's still, you know, 50 feet. So that's what we were doing a lot of our work in was in that 30 to 60 foot depth. 
Okay. And you're still free diving, trying to, you know, catch them at the surface, basically. Mm-hmm. That's the only way with these mantas. And it was tricky because it looks like based on what we can see on our sonar, that sometimes they were spending a lot of their time at depth, it appeared. They would come up and breach or come up to the surface for a brief second and then go immediately back down. And then you can watch them on your sonar. And watch the big blobs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've learned when they're doing that behavior, I think is one of my lessons from this year, is that it's not worth trying to do in-water work. And that particular day, the viz was so bad that I honestly, sometimes I think some days aren't good enough to do it. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I like going out doing manta ray work with you is because it's only possible on nice days. Oh, I have some volunteers who would probably testify that I've taken them out on some not so nice days, but (laughs) I mean, I've gone out when like, it's a little rough, but it's, you know, it's fine. Like, (laughs) you have to be able to see what you're doing. It's lovely. Yes. Well, and it's just, it gets too dangerous for me if you're with the manta so close to shore and with waves and everything. If, you know, you don't have a calm sea state, I personally just don't think it's worth it. Yeah, that makes total sense. So, you know, on your paper, you have 59 individuals identified from 2016 to 2019. Has that number grown since 2019? I'm assuming it has. 59? We've doubled that number. We are at currently 125 in the South Florida project. That is awesome. Yeah, we've gotten a lot better at it. Yes. Well, you've gone from riding on the bow and like, you know, just like looking for the manta rays to like throwing a drone in the air. And while we still, you know, look from the boat, the drone really helps. It's amazing. I have trouble imagining my life pre-drone sometimes. Yeah, it really is such a game changer. So for listeners, when Jess started this project and I would go out with her, it was usually just you on the bow of the boat holding onto the bow line and We'd be driving and just like looking for mantas that we could see from the boat. But then Jess got a drone license and a drone. And the beautiful thing about that is the higher you go, you can just see so, so, so much more. So like finding manta rays now is so much easier. (laughs) You can cover a lot more ground. And we find so much other cool stuff. We find hammerheads. Last year, we found our first tiger shark. I documented spotted eagle rays mating on the drone last year. That was cool. Dolphins, manatees nursery of nurse shark sawfish sawfish yes yeah the drone is amazing and it allows us to see some really cool stuff i love it yeah and we're also doing research with the drone my research assistant just submitted her first paper for publication that's using videos from the drone to look at the kinematics of different behaviors so what does that mean So basically, we hover the drone and let the manta swim through the frame. And we have three different behaviors, either traveling, which just means they're kind of like in transit, feeding and resting behavior, which is where they're using a current to kind of stay in place. She analyzed those videos to look at swimming speed and wing beat frequency and saw how those were correlated to each other and how those varied between different behaviors. What were some of the things that y'all found? I don't know if I want to spoil her study results. I guess hopefully it'll be published soon. Okay. Well, let you know what? Maybe I'll have Vicky on the show and she can chitty chat about it. Yeah, it should be. We submitted it to a journal that has a quick turnaround. So hopefully results will be out soon. Sounds good. 
One of the papers that I saw that you had out was using species distribution modeling to kind of predict where these rays are going to be throughout the year. Can you chat a little bit about that? Yes. Don't ask me at all about the modeling because that was all Nick Farmer and his computer genius. (laughs) But yeah, so he took some data sets. A lot of them were aerial surveys that were used for other purposes, like NOAA's marine mammal surveys. And they also document rays in some of those surveys. And it's basically taking those large data sets, seeing when and where the rays are and using that to model to see like what environmental factors might predict where you know a manta ray, like where they're going to prefer or be. Mm-hmm. So what did you guys find? Or what did the models predict? I saw it was predominantly weather dependent, right? So cooler weather, they're more prone to be in lower latitudes, warmer weather, they go a little bit higher. Yeah, so they found that manta's distribution was largely affected by temperature and that they were often found at the surface of thermal frontal boundaries, generally within a temperature range of 15 to 30 degrees Celsius. Hmm, That's really interesting. I mean, and this is found with your manta data. So it was predominantly like the juveniles in South Florida and the adults in Canaveral. No, absolutely not. So this data was mostly other aerial survey data from these larger data sets that have been going on for many years. Some were marine mammal aerial survey data, such as right whales. Some was survey data from the New York Energy Department. And basically my data was just used to verify the model. So he collected data sets from a bunch of different groups to put it in the model to see how the model worked. Hmm. So you have the verification data. I like it. Yeah. (laughs) So for me, it's like so cool to see how your project really has grown and flourished. And I mean, you were featured in a Nat Geo article. How did that come about? Oh, well, help us when your co-author is a National Geographic Explorer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, but we, we just put press out for that article. And people like to talk about baby manta rays living next to these urban populations of millions of people. Yeah, that's true. And it's amazing to know that they're here, but also, of course, they're here. And it's amazing that people don't know they're here at the same time, right? Yeah, no, I still happens all the time where people tell me that they didn't realize there were manta rays in Florida. Yeah, I know. And one of the chief concerns that I get when people are like, oh, manta rays, isn't that what killed Steve Irwin? Don't they have stingers? Oh, that definitely came up in our angler surveys. Steve Irwin was mentioned more than once. <laughs> so the answer for listeners that may not know is that manta rays do not have barbs. No, they do not. You will not meet a demise like Steve Irwin if you interact with a manta ray. So when we chatted earlier, your project was, I mean, it was truly like a side project, right? Like it was something you did, you had a job, you did it on the side, um, you got volunteers to come and help you, which you still utilize that model to an extent. But now you're doing this like way more full time. You have an actual research assistant that's putting out their own publications, which is amazing. How have you found like funding for this? Yeah, I was really lucky to have most of our research right now is funded by grant. We've gotten some small grants from zoos and aquariums, and we've gotten some larger grants from the Disney Conservation Fund. And then a lot of the other funding is through MMF and private donors and larger donors. That's awesome. So what are some of the bigger challenges that you're facing right now with your research or with the project as a whole? 
Hmm. Probably that I have more ideas than I have time to execute them. I would say it would be my current problem. Just write them down and store them in a drawer for future use. I mean, I have a list in my head and well, I sometimes I've been wanting to start this guitar fish project for a while and this opportunity came up recently and now it looks like I'm going to be trying to be tagging guitar fish at the beginning of this summer and everything is just more time consuming than you always think it's going to be. <laughs> yeah, it really is. So wait, did you say you're going to be tagging guitar fish? Mm-hmm. That's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be fun. So with Mansa Rays, that was something I'll say how your project has grown. You, you've done acoustic tags and some satellite tags, right? Yeah, we've put out quite a few satellite tags. We put, just put out some in Cape Canaveral too. Awesome. How many have you put out so far? I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, but I would say probably around 15. That's a good amount, really. Yeah, it, it is. And our, our first batch of satellite tags, we got really nice data from. And then we've been having some problems lately with our last few tags. Some of them haven't reported, which is immensely frustrating. Satellite tags are great because they can provide more data, right? But then do you have to recover them in order to get the data? No, not necessarily. So we, we put out two kinds of tags on the manta rays. We have spot tags, which are tags that when they come to the surface and their antenna breaks the surface, it'll give you like a real-time location of where that manta is. So it's really cool, but it doesn't give you any other information other than locational data, but it's pretty precise locational data. The other ones, which are called mini pats, they're going to give you data on diving and temperature and also location, but their location data is not as accurate. So those are programmed to pop off at a certain time. And when they go to the surface, they send all the data to a satellite. But sometimes they're limited, you know, by the bandwidth for how much data they can send. So if you're able to recover the satellite tag, you can get all of that data. And sometimes if you don't, you'll still get data, but maybe not as fine scale data. So have you been able to recover all of your tags that you needed to, you wanted to? The ones that have reported, we actually, the first season we put tags out, we recovered almost all of them. But if they don't report, there's no way to find them unless someone happens upon them. So lately we haven't recovered them. We have one that's out in the a spot tag that's out uh, off the Mid-Atlantic Ridge right now that popped off a manta and went to the Gulf Stream. And it's just tracking ocean currents. Please, somebody pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> Near Bermuda. <laughs> well, maybe you guys will get it. That'd be cool. <laughs> we put some tags out on juveniles this winter that could be popping off, you know, within the next month. And we just put some out on the adults in Central Florida. So yeah, we should be getting more data anytime now. I'm texting my colleague at NOAA almost daily. So we also talked about acoustic tags. What are some of like the pros and cons for using a satellite versus an acoustic tag, or at least for Manta research? The benefits, so how an acoustic tag works is it's a small tag that you put on the Manta in the same way you do a satellite tag. I mean, it sends out this unique ping, but it has to be near an acoustic receiver that records that ping or else the ping just goes out 
into the middle of the ocean and no one knows about it. The plus is if a manta swims by that acoustic receiver, you know that it was probably within 500 to 1,000 meters of that acoustic receiver, which is really accurate data. So it gives you very accurate data. The problem is if there aren't any receivers in that area and the manta was there, you have no idea. So it can only tell you where the manta has been if there are receivers there. Satellite tags just don't give you that accurate of locational data generally. But with the acoustic tag, you're also not getting that temperature and diving data. And then like the spot satellite tags will give you accurate location data, but is it more expensive? Is that part of the issue with it? No, it's just they have to be for the spot tag. It has to be a surface dwelling animal. So they're a lot more successful on animals that are, yeah, something that has to come to the surface. Mantas tend to spend a lot of their time at the surface, but you know, they don't have to come up. We put two spot tags out last week and we've heard from them twice, but it's been like four days since we've heard from them and I'm checking my email obsessively see if we hear from them again. And it's kind of a trade-off because some people who study sharks maybe account for this by putting a very long tether on the spot tag. So the further it is away from the surface, it'll still reach. But we have people fishing around these mantas and sharks bite them off. So having a longer tether is a little riskier. It's a, a delicate balance of trying to figure out the, the perfect way to do it. And I don't think we've necessarily figured out the perfect way. Trial and error. Yeah, it's a lot of compromise. <laughs> I really love this idea of you waiting for an email from a manta, right? I mean, I've checked my email twice during this conversation. <laughs> I so want to know where they are. Because this is the first time anyone has tracked these manta rays and their movements north. So I really don't exactly know what they're going to do. So it, it's really exciting. Yeah, that's super cool. And then just to circle back really quickly with the acoustic tags, they're awesome because you like you mentioned, they're great to pinpoint specific locations, but you have to go and pick them up and like download the data. Mm -hmm. Pros and cons, but the way we do it here in Florida and a lot of other places, well, Florida and all along the Eastern United States is we have like an acoustic telemetry network. So I'm actually waiting for my acoustic data right now. I should be getting it in the next week or so. So every time when I download my receivers, I send them off to the Florida acoustic telemetry network, which is also called the FAT network. And then they process all the detections from everyone. So that way I find out from everyone's receivers if my mantas were detected on them. And I also get to see what animals were detected on mine, which is really fun because we've had tiger sharks and hammerheads and sawfish and triple tail and snook and tarpon. And it's really cool to see everything that's swimming around in your area. Yeah, that's awesome. So there's just other people tagging, acoustically tagging all these creatures. And if they swim by your receiver, it'll ping and your receiver downloads the data. And then when you go specifically for your receivers, if you go <laughs> pick them up and send them off to the network, everybody gets their data and you can kind of see everybody else's data. That's super fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really cool. And it's the only way it would really be feasible to study a large ra a ranging species like a manta ray, because I could never put an acoustic array that could covered their range. It would be expensive and impossible to maintain. And a lot of people in other areas have where manta rays have cleaning stations, they'll just put the acoustic receiver on the cleaning station. So you kind of know when the mantas are coming to visit the cleaning stations, but we haven't found any cleaning stations here. So not yet. Not yet. <laughs> 
I don't know where they would be. They're not on the reefs that people dive on. So I'm curious, with the manta cleaning stations elsewhere in the world, are these adult mantas or are they juvenile? It can be both adults and juveniles. That's good to know. All right. So I asked you this last time and my answer changes every day. So I'm curious what your answer is today. What's your favorite sea creature and why? My favorite sea creature is the manta ray. I freaking love them. I was up flying in an airplane today and we found over 20 of them and they were just feeding at the surface and I just love seeing them. That's so cool. Where did you fly today? We flew way up north, north, way more north than I usually fly, but kind of up near St. Augustine just to see the last little bit of the migration. That's awesome. I want to back up for a second. Tell me a little bit more about this guitar fish project. How are you thinking about tagging them? You're going to fish for them? Yeah, so I think this is going to be another kind of novel project. But basically, how this started is there's a little reef at my near my house, like a little hard bottom reef that I like to snorkel. And I see guitar fish quite frequently. I saw one there last night. So I started collecting photos of kind of their discs. They kind of they're more like shark like than a normal ray, but they kind of have like a triangle spade shaped head. They have lots of little white spots on them to see if like a manta ray, we might be able to identify them by these spot patterns. Although I think I'm going to need computer help on this one because they are very spotty. So right now, all I've done is collect a bunch of photos. And it's one of those things that's on the near the bottom of my to-do list that I want to do, but I just haven't had time. But I, I, no one knows really very much about the ecology of these animals. So there's a student at FAU who is putting down an acoustic array to study green sea turtles. And he's putting down what's called a VPS array, which is this very fine scale array. You know, I was talking about acoustic telemetry being fine scale before, but this is where you put the receivers so close together that they overlap so that an animal will be picked up by three receivers at one time. And then you can triangulate to see exactly where that animal was. Where he's tagging these green sea turtles, there's also guitar fish on this reef. And he's only going to have this array up for five or six months. So it's a really good opportunity to take advantage of someone else doing a lot of the, the hard work and the it's, it's very expensive. We want to just tag a few guitar fish and see what their residency and movements look like. So will this be more similar to how you tag a manta ray diving down and putting a tag on it? No, these are smaller. So we probably would catch them and surgically implant a tag like they do with a lot of the sharks. Cool. Well, I'm curious to see how this works out. Yeah, I have to figure out how to catch them first. (laughs) They're really fast. We'll see how it goes. All right. Well, good luck. It'll be entertaining. Well, uh, yeah, hopefully it works. I mean, I've talked to people in the aquarium trade who catch them for the aquarium trade and you can catch them so okay so how do they do it with a net with like a hand net (laughs) that's kind of was thinking like an oversized hand net and then you kind of like corral them into it yeah I think it's just going to be very difficult but you never know until you try Right. And with somebody down there just for video purposes, just to film how this is done. Maybe we'll put a GoPro on someone's head. But I feel like we're going to need all hands on deck to do this whole operation. There you go. Put a GoPro, like stake it into the ground and then go to work and then just try to remember at the end. All right. New question that I've added. What does the ocean mean to you? So I know this is kind of vague, but I feel like the ocean means 
so many different things to me. I I was thinking about this last night because we got home from Cape Canaveral and like after all this work and driving and everything, like first thing I wanted to do is to go put my fins on and go in the ocean and just be in clear water again and see my little home reef. It's like where I go for recreation, it's where I go for work. I don't know. I just get so much from the ocean in so many different ways. I love that you came from a field trip. Truly, you know, you're out in Canaveral, you're out in the boat, on the ocean, looking for these manta rays. And then your first inclination when you get home is to hop back in. (laughs) It's so nice to be able to see the bottom and see the animals. (laughs) Yes, it's nice to have clear water. I agree with that. Very curious for your answer for this next one. If you were given a blank check, unlimited funding for any project or projects up to three, what would you use it for? Ooh, up to three projects? Well, one, can I use the first blank check to make my dream boat or boats, plural? Yeah, I actually had somebody, one of their projects was a boat that walked the walk. Yeah, no, I mean... I've been thinking about my dream boat for a long time. (laughs) So what would your dream boat look like? Probably be, I want it to be a work boat with a nice, very secure hull, probably two engines on the back, brand new Suzuki's and add a tower to it. Tower is like the big thing that I really want. And just more of like, I feel like most of the boats are designed for fishing. And so we have a lot of wasted space on our boat. So I would just like to design it so everything is for research and everything has its place. And it's so much easier to organize everything. But something that can handle some rougher seas and go maybe a little bit faster if needed. Second one, I was just thinking about this, would be to probably do some exploratory manta work, maybe over in the Bahamas, because I know they see mantas over there and I have reports, but it's something just time or money. I just want to go over there and explore and see, because it seems like they also have a, a population of juveniles. So I'd like to do aerial surveys and maybe have like a liveaboard dive boat that we'd go around and look for manta rays and maybe put some tags out. That'd be cool. I'd be so curious if some of the rays that you see here or over there yeah I mean I definitely think it's possible a lot of the reports I get from there aren't ID shots I've got a couple ID shots from there but you know maybe if we just keep collecting enough data and on that same trip I'd like to see sometimes I hear about these adult mantos in Florida in central Florida being way offshore like too far that I would feel uncomfortable taking my single engine boat I would also take that liveaboard boat and go see if we could find some of those big mantas in a little bit clearer water because I was thinking about this week when I heard that they were 30 miles offshore. I was like, oh, it'd be nice to just be able to like sleep out there and find them. Yeah. 30 miles is a haul in one day. I mean, we were doing it in my boat just along the coast and not offshore. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I'm in for the live aboard. We just got to find the blank check. (laughs) Any other projects? You get one more. I mean, I guess they're not specific projects as much as I would just pay more people to help me on these projects, like support students or researchers to help on a lot of these projects is I feel like I would use it for salaries since that's always the hardest thing to come up with money for. I would use that blank check to, you know, get salaries for an indefinite amount of time. Yeah, that's how I would use it because I'm going to keep coming up with projects, but yeah, I can't do them all by myself. Got to prioritize, but you know what? Maybe a blank check will come. 
wasn't there a movie back in the 90s called Blank Check? It was like this little kid who finds one and then he buys like a mansion and stuff. Oh, yes. And he bought like an arcade with it or something, right? Yep. (laughs) Yes. I totally would not have recalled that movie unless you said something. Yeah. Oh, maybe a blank check. I would free all the marine mammals from captivity. (laughs) All right. What's your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could just be an amazing day out on the water, or it could be a day where things happened and it makes a great story now. Yeah. So I told you the story about... Don't eat the goat. Yes. Last time. So... (laughs) This story happened while I was a marine biology instructor with a company called Seamaster. Basically, that was a company on traditionally rigged schooners where we would sail around the Caribbean teaching marine biology and diving. And I was on the boat one day all alone off the island of Dominica. And we were on a mooring ball. I was just sitting down below in the chart room working on my lesson plans. All of a sudden, I start hearing all these people screaming, and then I hear the boat thud. And I go up on deck, and we are starboard side two on the rocky beach of Dominica. I was absolutely horrified. The whole crew and captain were on this 14-mile hike to this top of this volcano. So they were out of cell service. There was no way they could come to help me. I called the owner of the company back in Florida and was like, hey, I'm in kind of a situation here. And he was basically like, you just have to deal with it and get the boat off the beach. Just get it off the beach. Because in front of me was like a dock. And I was like, I don't know if I can turn without running through this dock. You know, this is a 90 foot steel hold sailboat. And if I reversed, it was through all these like little tiny boats that were moored. So I was full on panicking. I tried to move the boat and I couldn't get it off the beach myself. Like it was pretty stuck, which I was honestly kind of relieved. And luckily we have friends in Dominica because we go there all the time. And a guy who does tours in Dominica, his name is Seacat. Go check out Seacat's tours if you are there. Seacat and his friend, whose name is Beans, they came over on their boat and we tied a line onto my boat and they basically pulled me off the beach backwards and I had to put our sailboat on another mooring ball. I had their help, but basically I had to do it by myself, which I'd never done in my life. Yeah, I had to free dive and check to make sure the hull was okay, but didn't look like any significant damage was done, but I got rescued by sea cat and beans and didn't have a heart attack, but came pretty close. Oh my God. That story is so good. <laughs> it's so good. It was really horrible at the time. I mean, it is horrible. Grounding your boat unintentionally is terrible, especially, I mean, you had a big boat. Yeah, I mean, it broke the mooring line and we were really close to shore. So that's why I didn't notice it had broke because it didn't take long for it to float back to shore. What did the captain say when he came back? Good job. (laughs) Good job. Thanks for getting off the beach. It was, uh, I'm just glad I didn't drive it through that dock. That was my worst fear. Yeah, I mean, honestly, though, it was kind of good luck where it, I mean, not good luck that it broke off the mooring, but if it had to land on the beach... At least it didn't drive into the dock or the small boats that you were saying behind you. I mean, I wish it just blown offshore would have been ideal. <laughs> I could have driven it around in circles in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> right. Fair enough. <laughs> 
Oh, uh, yeah. I remember the first time you told me that story when I beached the boat. <laughs> Happens to everyone. <laughs> really does. Debating if I want to tell the story or not. <laughs> I'll tell it. So Jess and I were working on the boat. And actually, we weren't supposed to be on the same boat, but the conditions were so rough that we left the smaller boat at the dock and took a slightly larger boat. They're both small boats. And went to go get our samples. And we were sampling really close to the beach. And there was a really, really strong current. And I saw the sandbar. And I thought I could get out in front of it before we got swept up into it. And the current was moving way faster than I thought. And it shoved us right onto the sandbar. And it was so strong. I thought we were going to go over for a second, honestly. We were healed over pretty good. (laughs) And then I got off the boat to try to like attempt to push us off. Jess was trying to use the motor while I was, and it just, we were like very stuck. Call boat, tow boat, call them. We got to get off now and just like no we can keep trying and i was like no we are very stuck and the tide is very much going out it will get harder <laughs> call them <laughs> so we got towed off the sandbar by towboat us shout out with marine research emblazoned on the side while all these people that were doing beach construction looked on and laughed at us at me because i was driving that's my fault <laughs> so that's my boat beach story <laughs> I'm glad the boat didn't tip over. That was like, I was genuinely scared there for a minute. (laughs) I'm just glad we were together (laughs) and not alone like we usually were. Yeah, that too. That would have been really bad solo. Ah. All right. So at the end of each episode, I like to leave uh, the audience with a conservation ask to go forth and bring to the world. What would you like my audience to take from your episode today? I think you said I asked this last time, but even more so now, I really, really appreciate citizen science reports of manta rays, either here in Florida or along the eastern seaboard or in the Gulf of Mexico or in the Bahamas. We have been learning a lot from these citizen science data. Some stuff that I would not have known about, like mantis using the intracoastal without citizen science data. So if you see one, please take a photo and send it to me with the date, time, and location. And just in general, there's so many citizen science projects out there that you can get involved in. I personally do it myself all the time. I will take pictures and send them to scientists to help them with their data. It's one of my favorite things to do. I love it. What are some of the other projects that you help contribute to? I know we've taken photos for dolphin research. What else? Yeah, we take photos for dolphin research. I will usually communicate with a few shark researchers about the hammerheads or schools of black tips. I'll let the leatherback researchers know about when we see leatherbacks. So yeah, I'm always down for collaborations. I always report my sawfish sightings too. And we usually have really nice videos to share with them. I know I just love collaborating with other scientists. It's so much fun and you can learn so much more that way. And it's important, you know, we can't all be at the same place or can't be all over the ocean at the same time. No, and I just am a person who's on the water a lot. You know, I'm always happy to help in whatever way I can. Do you have another conservation ask? I mean, I have a bazillion. (laughs) I would just say for people to be proactive in pushing for larger changes, whether that with politics or with private industry, you know, we all need to make our voices heard, you know, even though it gets exhausting. I feel like the more support we have and the more people who do it, the stronger your voices are. So, you know, in regards to climate change and habitat destruction, 
election. And there's just so much going on that, you know, we all need to make sure we're, we're speaking up and not letting people get away with bad decisions. Yeah. If the listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and or your projects. What's the best place to do so? They can find me on Instagram at Florida Manta Girl or at Marie Megafauna on Facebook at Marie Megafauna Foundation Americas. And also if you go to marinemegafauna.org and find the Florida Manta Project on there, we have a pretty brand new website. It's brand new since the last time I talked to you and I'm really proud of it. So please go check that out. It has links to Other things we've done since I last talked to you, we have like lesson plans for elementary schoolers and we soon will have them for middle schoolers. So links to those are on there and links to how to report manta rays and links to our publications and press releases and stuff. Awesome. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot to talk about the lesson plans. So can you give me a brief rundown of what they are and who can access them? Yeah, so we developed seven free lesson plans for grades three through five. They're designed to meet uh, Florida State science and also some of them to meet other like social studies or math standards, but also the next generation standard for the larger U.S. But yeah, so they're fun lesson plans that are interactive and they're designed to teach kids about either manta rays or marine conservation while meeting their requirements for their grade. So we have ones that talk about classification and how to classify sharks and rays and one about different adaptations that rays have and one where students get to actually be filter feeders and filter food out and do a little experiment, see how much food they filter out and how much plastic they filter out. And we're in development for middle school ones right now. And we also have an in-classroom program where we come to classrooms twice a month and we can give a Manta presentation and or do the lesson plan in your class and information for how to contact us. The email is florida at marinemegafauna.org but all of that again is on the website so yeah we're really involved we can do it virtually or if you're local we can come to your school i've also written a children's book about mantas but we still haven't published it yet but that's going to happen soon hopefully what that's awesome do you have a publisher no we're going to self-publish it Okay. If you don't want to go down the route of self-publishing, because I've heard of people like, I'll just self-publish. And then they're like, it was a lot of work. Oh, it is a lot of work. I'm prepared for that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a a nightmare. (laughs) I'm not looking forward to it, which is maybe why we haven't done it yet. But everything's finished. I just have to do it. (laughs) So why are you self-publishing versus other routes? I guess so. We have full control over everything. I'm assuming there's illustrations. Who did your illustrations? We hired an illustrator that my co-author knew. Who's your co-author? So I met her on... I don't remember exactly. It was a while ago. We've been working on this for a while. I did one of those like Instagram posts, like meet Jessica Pate. And I was, I've always wanted to write, like I've had this idea for this children's book for a while. I just needed someone to help me with it again, because it's just too much. So me and this girl worked on it for a while. Very cool. Well, I'm excited for you. Thank you. Awesome. Well, I'll put a link to everything we chatted about today in the show notes. Thank you for your time today. It was awesome catching up with you and doing a download of all the things that you've done in the last few years. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? 
head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.